This show is part of the Electric Agora network of podcasts. Welcome to Sophia, everyone out there in Sophia land. Uh, I am here with uh, Electric Agora writers and uh, Sophia regulars, uh, Robert Gressis and Kevin Curry-Knight. Um, we are here... This is actually now goes stretches back in time a little bit, but this is simply because I had uh, uh, parental and estate related duties that I had to run to New York for. Um, but they're still ongoing. It's that are ongoing. The estate thing's going to be going on for probably years. I mean, I, I, you know, COVID mm-hmm. courts in New York were already backed up, but COVID backed everything up. So what normally in New York, everything goes through probate. There, there is no, it's wow. not only if people dispute, every single wow. death goes through probate. I wonder what the rationale of that is. Uh, the rationale is to make everyone's life a, miser- a misery. That's that's the rationale. <laughs> but um, so what should have been a very quick and routine, uh, you know, estate situation now is going to, it could take months for this to go through probate. Mm. So there's not even an estate account set up. I mean, the whole thing is still everything is up in the air. My mother is there by herself. She has 24 hour care, of course, but still, I, you know, I don't like yeah. her being halfway across the country. So my wife and I have been sh- taking turns twice a month, shuttling back and forth from Missouri to New York, which, and I've been doing it in the car. I've been driving um, partly because I just have had so mm-hmm. many changes of plans on me that I've had to change plane tickets over and over again. And I'm finally just like, I'm just driving. Then I can control when I go and when I come and, and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, way too long. Um, I did a bits and pieces and my bits and pieces are, it's sort of an intermittent series where when I have a bunch of thoughts that are well-formed enough that I can kind of articulate them as a series of questions, but I haven't yet figured out what I think completely the answers are though i have hunches that's when i do that sort of thing i won't lie increasingly that's pretty much what i think philosophy is good for um i think it's ter- i think i think it's terrible on the answer side i think it's very good on the question side which is maybe, what we're going to be talking about and maybe that's partly what we're going to be talking about um um so anyway I, I thought that this was relatively not only unsurprising because everybody knows me by now who reads and watches this thing, but because um, I said it kind of plainly, but Robert got really pissed off. And I actually, I actually, I think I DM'd you privately. I'm like, Robert, I hope I didn't insult you. I really didn't mean to because I adore Robert and I don't ever want him to think poorly of me. So, um, but then Kevin kind of, um, piled on poor, poor Robert and Kevin gave a much more articulate and not bits and pieces kind of treatment of this in now two pieces. And so I thought, you know, you know, Robert went to the trouble to write a pretty lengthy, um, a pretty lengthy uh, reply to me. And I thought, you know, let, let him, let him, let's articulate this in person. Let's talk about this together. Um, and it's so much fun anyway. So Robert had asked that, that each of us maybe kind of very briefly summarize what it is we were trying to get at. Um, and then I'm going to let Robert sort of start in with what some of his his worries were, the ones that he's already written, and then whatever he's been thinking about since then. So in my bits and pieces, I was primarily concerned with showing, showing, um, um, giving some, imp- some impressions of the ways in which philosophy, I think, very poorly handles basic notions in ethics. Uh, notions like the supererogatory, um, um, uh, which philosophy has a very specific treatment of that I think doesn't, doesn't capture the ordinary concept at all. 
Um, I also uh, felt that way about certain common notions like what that would seem contradictory about, about the obligatory, um, um, which I talked about. I said, sometimes I think you ought to do that, which is not obligatory, and that that's understandable in a common ordinary frame of reference. And I explained how it's understood, but I don't think philosophy can make any sense of it. And I drew a sort of a more general moral from this, I guess, that that um, I don't know that I think philosophy is nearly as good as, as giving rational reconstructions of practices and views. And given that I'm a very old-fashioned kind of analytic philosopher, that's kind of what I think philosophy does, is give rational reconstructions. I think philosophy is fundamentally second order in that regard. And so if it can't make sense of a practice, its job is not to prescribe the practice um, or to prescribe the belief, which I think a lot of philosophers today think it, it, it is and I think is, is not great. So that was sort of the point. Um, and, and Robert had some pretty strong reactions to that and very thoughtful ones. He didn't just sort of say, I hate this. I mean, he wrote a whole. Now, then Kevin came along and he sort of put it in his own frame of reference. And I'll, I'll pass it over to Kevin to, to do his little brief thing. And then I would like Robert to talk about his thoughts on this. Yeah, well, well all that, especially uh, both Dan's piece and the Robert's response, got me thinking about um, what my view of, of philosophy is like what it does, what it's capable of doing, what it's realistic to expect, because that's kind of what Dan's piece was about. And then that got me into thinking like the only way I can really approach this is biographically, um, because I think kind of the way I traveled through philosophy affects that. So I subscribed to something of a, a, a notion that maybe someone like William James or Richard Rorty would, would subscribe to, which is uh, philosophy is a really good way to articulate uh, experiential and interpretive views of the world, but it's not very good at all at trying to prove that those uh, that those are true and in the strong meaning of of the sense of truth. So it could entirely be possible for philosophers um, to articulate very different views of the world that make very different sense of the same things and absolutely come to an impasse. And I feel like that's not a failing of philosophy. That's that's what we should have expected all along. If we expected more than that, we just expected more than it was ever capable of doing. So I guess the way I put it in the piece is that I feel like, I think that philosophy should be almost looked at as a type of poetry, a type of rhetoric that does something more than what poets or rhetoricians would do. It operates by argument that's meant to persuade others, but that I think any talk of like getting to uh, any strong notion of the truth of matters is not something philosophy will ever be capable of. And I don't really have a problem with that. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things Dan said when he was introducing his piece uh, in this discussion right now, that is, is that nothing of what I said should come as a surprise to anyone who knows me. And I do know Dan and it didn't come as a surprise and yet it bothered me anyway and that to me was surprising. It's annoying, it's annoying though unsurprising. <laughs> well, except it had not bothered me in the past. Right, right. Oh, that's interesting. It, that's interesting. This time it bothered me. So I was trying to figure out, I, I think if anybody reads, so Dan's piece was published on March 13th and then Kevin's were, he wrote two pieces, were published a couple of weeks later. And if anybody reads my comment on Dan's piece, they'll they'll notice that I keep on trying to understand why I'm having the reaction I'm having. <laughs> and um, I think I never expl explained why I found it puzzling that I was having the reaction I was having, but that's why. Uh, like what has changed that this now bothers me? 
Um, and I think the way I ask the question is, I just don't see why you do philosophy in that case, right? And um, and I think part of what, when, when Dan wrote the piece, he was talking more about the lack of efficaciousness of arguments in philosophy. That's I don't, in there too, yeah, that's in yeah, there. I don't yeah. think he emphasized so much that the point of philosophy is to, is to ask questions or, or to rationally reconstruct our practices, where that does give me an understanding of why you would do philosophy, like just trying to understand why we're doing what we're doing. Um, though I will still say that like one place I keep on finding myself going because what, what, what Dan and Kevin are both doing is what's what philosophers call meta philosophy. So this is the philosophy of philosophy, which means <laughs> thinking in a philosophical terms, what is it that we philosophers are doing it's sort of, it's like a trying to rationally reconstruct the practice of philosophy itself. And whenever I think about metaphilosophy, I keep on finding myself doing this thing that annoys Dan. I don't know if it annoys him anymore. It just, he's gotta be used to it by now, which is I always make it focus on itself, right? If, if you say that the point of philosophy is to rationally reconstruct practices, that seems like an answer. <laughs> and that seems like you're saying, this is what we do. And that if you don't agree with that, you're wrong. But that seemed to be intention just a little bit of tension, but that seemed to be in tension with the stuff Dan was saying about how arguments are all hypothetical. They all appeal to people only if the people already have some views that make the premises of the arguments compelling. And so if people don't have those views, then the arguments aren't gonna work. So all philosophy is directed to particular interlocutors and you can't find an argument that's gonna work for everybody because people are too different and arguments sort of rely on people's sentiments and marshalling them to get to different directions. As far as Kevin goes, Kevin also was giving an answer and he said philosophy springs, he didn't say entirely from temperament. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I felt, found myself yeah, but, reading him that way, but he, he, was, he was careful not to say entirely from temperament. I believe yeah. he said something like people's philosophical positions mm -hmm spring just as much from their temperaments as they do from their arguments. Yeah, I would put it almost like a, what temperament is sort of a, a, a necessary uh, player, but it's not a sufficient player. Right. And so, so this makes me think, okay, is Kevin's own view that philosophy springs from temperament something that springs from his temperament? I'm sure he'll say, yeah, to some degree, that is yeah. my view. Yeah. And he even gave a story about that. Yeah. And what I'm trying to figure out is like, there's this kind of dance that I at least see Kevin engaging and he might not see it this way where I'm a good dancer. <laughs> oh, are you? No. Oh, all right. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe philosophically you are um, where it seems like he's saying I'm not a good dancer either. <laughs> I, I, I am a bold dancer. Good I don't know. If it's I will leave that me. to the audience to judge. I um, wish I was a good dancer. Yeah. Bold <laughs> could be bad though. No, I don't. Well, yeah, it, it's it's very Aristotelian, right? Circumstances, right times. It's useful at weddings. It's yeah. I was gonna say it sucks when I'm at social things with my wife. My yeah. wife's a very good dancer, and it really does kind of suck that I can't dance with her and not look like an like an idiot. Um, yeah. um, so I, I do actually. I'm serious. I do envy the fact that you can dance. I mean, that's well. I lean into my idiocy. 
If you own it, it doesn't appear as, as idiotic. That is actually one of the keys though, right? Like you can be a bad dancer, but lean into it in such a way where somehow you can fool people into like, wow, you yeah. meant to do that. That's, right? that's you meant You meant to look like that. Yeah, that, it looks demented, but he seems to mean it. So it can't be, what am I missing? Um, yeah. yeah. So, so one of the things then that I want to say is that Kevin seems to be saying, this is how philosophy is done. This is the answer. And uh, he is describing what we are all doing. And I think he thinks his description of what we are all doing is true. But it also springs from his temperament too. But I, yeah. I, it, sort of, it sort of to me feels like I can't help but to view this world this way, at least for now. And from my perspective of viewing the world this way, it looks like what most people are doing is they have these feelings and they are articulating them. And that's what philosophy is at the end of the day. But again, it ends with, and that's what philosophy is at the end of the day. That's not just right. a feeling. Yeah. I mean, and of course you can try to get out of it, but, but and I, whenever I bring yeah, this yeah, kind of yeah, move up yeah. to Dan, Dan always brings up Wittgenstein to me. And he talks about, I think, anchor points or something like that, where there's certain kinds of, of, of things we hold constant for a conversation and then when we try to focus on those things we hold constant, we have to change to a different conversation. That's right. And we, and we can never get out of all conversations. That's right. That's right. You're, you're, you're asking for something that simply doesn't, cannot be, right? I mean. But I'm trying, I, I know you say that. <laughs> no, but I mean, for, for the Wittgenstein's reasons now, if you have counter arguments, that's fine now. But, but, but I mean, I mean, I do think that those, I mean, arguments are kind of strong. I don't think I said that arguments don't do anything. No, you I didn't said, say they don't. Do I said that they... I said that philosophers overestimate them because they depend typically on a lot of premises that simply cannot be demonstrated or cashed out by the participants, right? So yeah. all you're doing is offering these big sprawling conditionals, which I guess I say okay to, but you know, there's a lot of conditionals, right? I mean, um, 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 that that you could produce sprawling uh, uh, argument yeah. sketches of. I think um, I think um, William Connolly. The, the philosopher of pluralism says something similar, kind of following probably Nietzsche, saying basically like any particular philosophy that you have is going to involve at root a certain element of faith. And usually we call those things first principles or we call them axioms and we figure out ways to say they're beyond argument. But I think he says, really, that's just a shorthand for saying these are common sense. But mm -hmm. the problem with common sense is that not everyone you're going to talk to shares the same idea of what common sense is. So right. then once those things are in dispute, you now shift the conversation to those things, but that, that's also going to involve a certain amount of faith. Now you're going to have a certain number of things that themselves in that conversation are now beyond dispute. Axioms, so is, first principles. Is, is this your way of cashing out the Wittgensteinian point that Dan was making? Well, I think it's similar to the, to, to a point that I, I, I either made implicitly in the piece or probably should have made because I, I, I agree with it, which is, yeah, that's, that's sort of the role that the, the sort of temperament uh, is going to play in establishing what your kind of the baseline assumptions, what your priors are, what your priors are, what your priors are, what your, and, and what, what you would count as a prior, what you would count as something, an objection that's beyond the pale and not worth argument, stuff like that, that different people could very well, easily. But that's a different, I don't necessarily disagree with that, but that, I mean, that is somewhat of a different point. Right? I mean, the point I was trying to make with regard to Robert and the, and Wittgenstein was that, um, unless you are playing in the foundationalist can't game, which I don't, right. 
then um, the fact of the matter is, is that any practice requires some starting point. Yeah. That doesn't make the starting point a foundation. And it doesn't mean that the starting point um, um, is right. subject okay. to interrogation from outside the, fr the frame of reference. It simply means you can't do anything without starting somewhere. Right. I mean, um, and I guess I don't see why that commits me to what Rob thinks it does. Well, what do you think I think you're committed to? I thought that you were saying that um, there's a kind of almost implicit or tacit foundationalism involved um, in, in, and certainly on the other end of it, when you were saying, well, you know, that's, that's taking, I mean, look, if I say that philosophy is a second order practice, Mm -hmm. whose job is to make sense of um, first order practices, right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what the forces of the objection of, oh, well, but isn't that statement part of a first order practice? Um, I guess my answer is, if that's your challenge, then basically nobody can ever claim anything as a second order practice, right? Which strikes me as absurd, right? Well, no, I don't know that it would follow that nobody can ever claim anything as a second order practice. Without committing to your commitments. And I don't see why. Yeah, right. It would be more like, uh, look, there are foundationalists out there. And foundationalists try to give arguments for foundationalism. Right. And, and just to be clear, in case anybody doesn't know what a foundationalism is, it's like there are these, these views in philosophy called having to do with what they call the architecture of knowledge. And that the foundationalist view is that there are these basic beliefs at the bottom of the, the sort of temple of knowledge, if you will, the foundations of knowledge. And if you ask, why should I believe those beliefs? They usually say something like, well, those things are either necessarily true or they're self-evident or they're evident to the senses. So these kinds of three things. And so you don't need another belief to justify those beliefs. As Dan said, you have to start somewhere and the foundationalist is going to say the starting points that you have to choose are one of these three things, right? right? Beliefs that are what are called properly basic. Right. And I'm guessing Dan is, I mean, so far as I know, there's only three views in the architecture of knowledge, which is coherentism, foundationalism, and infinitism. And uh, coherentism- or, or, or no theory. Um, there, is, there is no struct, general structure. What would that mean? that there's no structure like that, surely that, that, that knowledge the body of human knowledge is not describable in an architectural metaphor like that okay but i mean it does seem that there is this i want to say fact that uh certain beliefs need other beliefs to be justified at least certain ones do yeah not so, all I mean, i'm not denying that there are inferential relations i'm just denying that it's a can identify the structure of knowledge as a kind of a descending uh, stream of inferences, right? Yeah. Uh, or as a circle. Well, that's the coherence. That's the coherence right. view, yeah. right? But I I've mean, always, I've always wanted to write this thing because I had just, I, I want to figure out where the, the metaphor comes from a foundation because it just seems like an awfully bad. It comes metaphor. from geometry. It's where Descartes, it's where Descartes starts from. Descartes just supports like to base all of human knowledge on the model of geometry. That's the basic foundationalist assumption. There is an empiricist version that goes to even people like Quine. I mean, Quine's not really a coherentist. He's a foundationalist um, um, because he believes that um, um, uh, surface irritations are the found are the epistemic foundation. But even then, um, it seems like it's still a metaphor that requires some analogy to like like um, um, 
to, to some metaphor of gravity in a building structure. And it's, unless you well, think that philosophy it does, has to it look like that. It kind of conflates those, I think. Um, I just but, don't see it. And I guess what, like my concern is probably similar to Dan's. I don't see why we ever just decided that was a really good metaphor to describe because how De- arguments work. If you know Descartes, you'll know why, because Descartes believed, I mean, look, this is, a, this is an inheritance of the scientific revolution. Yeah. And it made perfect sense to think that at the time, because the scientific revolution dr- brought human knowledge leaps and bounds into the future after a period of a serious stagnation. And so it's not surprising that people then thought that these mathematical sciences right. um, would, would provide the model of all human knowledge. But I mean, even the case of geometry, and, and please, and then Robert should get back into this, even the case of geometry, I mean, it undercuts itself, right? Because we now know there are multiple geometries, right? And if you ask, well, which foundations are the real ones? The answer is none, right? I mean, it's just, if you start with these, you get that. If you start with those, you get that. And, and goes that's back the Palestinian point yeah, about, about starting start points, somewhere. right? You have to start somewhere, but that doesn't mean that the somewheres are special or privileged in some way, right? You're, these are just language games, right? Right. Um, <laughs> so if I, ask you, if, if I ask you to say, these are just language games, right? all just language games, and I say, what's your justification for the claim that it's all just language games? Have I changed something? Have I done something illicit by asking that question? Well, you're doing what, what Carnap would call asking external questions. I would say the question's ill-formed. Can you explain why the question is ill-formed? Yes, because you're asking, you're, it's sort of like asking, um, well, what caused the universe? Causes only operate within a universe. So you can't ask what caused the universe because there aren't any causes outside of the universe. And what I would say is there aren't any warrants outside frames of reference. That's the other thing about this is that warrant is local. There's no such thing as, as unmoored warrant or warrant separate from a frame. Um, 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 that's Wittgenstein's whole point about, I mean, there isn't even grammar separate from a frame, right? Yeah, I mean, I, first of all, the question- And there's a ton of illustrations. I mean, you'd have to sort of explain why all of his illustrations don't work in order to sort of- I mean, you can't just dismiss it as the point, right? I mean, you have to kind of take it seriously. No, I, I don't dismiss it. I just- So what about the slab to... language? That can't be a language? Okay, hold on, hold on. I don't dismiss it. I just want to know why I ought to accept it. Like yeah. what the argument for it is. So like, uh, I don't remember the slab uh, thing that Wittgenstein did. I remember reading Philosophical Investigations where somebody kept on screaming slab but I forgot why that person. It's where slab is not a re- is not we we normally use slab as a referential um, um, uh, term, but there it's it's a verb. Okay, um, and yeah, and, and other and he does variations. I mean, there's all sorts of, you know, um, and it's and it also brings in things like like implicature and stuff like that. You know, when someone says slab, are they intending to refer to a slab? Are they telling you to bring them a slab? Are they, you know, um, and that that depends on the grammar and that depends on what language game you're playing. But the idea, well, which is the correct language game, which is what the realist wants to keep answering. That's a bad question. Right. So, see, I would have a slightly different answer to dance, but I think it's compatible. 
I really think that, you know, over the past 10 years, I've, I've really started to think that philosophy is a lot more uh, about rhetoric than, than we think it is. And when you ask for justification, what most people would think you're doing is taking something that's operating at this level and asking, well, let's go a step down and figure out why, what reasons you have for that. And then every new justification is kind of a step towards those foundations. Mm-hmm. I just think that what you're doing could be retranslated instead of saying, what's the justification for this? Give me a reason for that that I would accept. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with asking for an, an additional argument for that that you would yeah. accept. I would just say there's nothing about that that's like, unpa- like you're, you're not going underneath the original statement to say, well, what justifies that? What supports that? You're just asking a, a, rhetor- a, a, a rhetorical question in the sense of give me a, 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 an argument for that that you think I would accept because I don't accept it. Right. There's nothing well, wrong with that. It's sometimes it's that. Sometimes it's give me a reason I would accept. Other times it's I want to understand why you accept it. So right, I want sure, you to sure. excavate your own reasons. Sure. But, but I just don't think you're doing anything more fundamental and getting closer to foundations the more you do that. Like Dan said, that there's no set of arguments that leads you down to the right set of foundations. It's it's whatever works in the discussion for the purposes that we're having the discussion. Yeah. So like to me, um, it's like, I still, I still don't fully understand the Wittgenstein thing. And here's the thing, um, this, I'm going to use an argument from authority, which is always dicey in philosophy because arguably none of us have any authority. Um, there do seem to be a lot of people who are extremely good at philosophy who are not persuaded by Wittgenstein's position. I don't know if Wittgenstein gives arguments for his position or not, or if it's more like a picture that you're supposed to sort of see and be moved by. It's more that. Yeah. yeah. So there are people who are at least not moved by the picture, who are not dummies. And who I think, if you're going to say they're just making a category error, you're going to have to be very careful <laughs> about how you lay that out so that you can um, you know, indict people like David Lewis or Saul Kripke of like making elementary mistakes. Not that they couldn't have made it, right? A lot of people think that Kant made an elementary mistake when it came to the thing in itself and how do we know there's a thing in itself given that knowledge only applies to things as they appear, that kind of stuff. And that he just didn't, he just didn't notice it because it was so foundational that it was like the water he, well, the air he breathed, I should say, he wasn't a fish. And so um, I think, you know, maybe the same thing happened with Kripke and Quine and Lewis. That just seems implausible to me in the sense that they were thinking about those issues (laughs) so much. But I, would be, I mean, I mean, look, they they all disagree with Wittgenstein in various ways, but not in the same ways and not about the same things. Yeah. There's a lot of ways in which Quine and Wittgenstein are quite similar. Yeah. Um, especially when you get to things like the indeterminacy of translation and other sort of stuff. I mean, um, and so I guess I don't. OK, some people who are very smart disagree with Wittgenstein. I mean, some people who are very smart disagree with Einstein. I, I guess I don't know what I'm supposed to draw from that. It doesn't seem to me um, specific enough to indicate anything defective about what I've said. All I've simply said is that philosophy overestimates um, how effective arguments are and what they actually do. And philosophy often misunderstands and mischaracterizes notions that ordinary people understand perfectly well. Yeah. Um, and that this is a serious problem because philosophy is a second order discipline. Now, if you want to say, well, then 
what kind of claim is the claim that, that philosophy is a second order discipline? My answer is observation. Now, is that a is that a justification in the strong epistemological sense? No, but I don't think there are any. Right? Uh-huh. <laughs> now you're gonna say, well, is that one? And then eventually I'm gonna say, do you actually want to understand and learn something, or are you just playing games and trying to win? Right. I'm not or, okay. Yeah. I, or, or is, I said, if you keep going with that, then I'm no, going to eventually start saying, yeah. do you think this is a productive line of inquiry or is this just gotcha tennis? So it's not, okay, it might be gotcha tennis. Well, that's and not I, interesting, right? I don't well, I, mean, okay. I, I, I would not spend five minutes doing that, right? It could also be that Rob, Rob and Dan's uh, ideas of what philosophy is are just so far apart that he, you're always going to interpret the other person other than the way they, they would interpret this is the this is the most common argument that's raised against the verification principles so rob's perfectly right to raise it yeah. i'm just simply asking i'm pushing back against it and saying i don't see what the usefulness of that sort of line of inquiry is i'll i'll i'll, I'll explain why What's the point of saying to an anti-foundationalist well you're really a foundationalist after all i mean i guess i can say no i'm not 15 times but at the end of that what have we gotten where have we gotten so we could have gotten three things. The first thing is that um, I think I'm not steeped in these debates between realists and anti-realists. I have read Paul Bogosian's book, Fear of Knowledge, where he tries to defend a realist point of view against people like Hillary Putnam and Richard Rorty and Nelson Goodman. So it's not like he's like picking on lightweights. Um, and basically, because I can't understand how to get out of this way of thinking, I think this is why I'm a realist. It's it's more like, it, it could be a gotcha game for all I know. And when I say for all I know, it's that I'm, I'm very um, skeptical about our self-knowledge and about our understanding of why we do what we do. Um, I agree with that. But, but, <laughs> but it's also, I was I'm, to, to sort of go on a tangent, I was teaching this article to my class called The Puzzle of Transparency by Michael Tai. And in that article, what Michael Tai basically says is that qualia aren't in the head. Qualia are out there in the world. And I literally can't understand the view. <laughs> like I tried to explain the view to my students and I thought, well, you know, maybe what's happening is that he's saying that there's a trope of redness and that when you have, like when you see an apple, what you're experiencing, like the trope of redness is in, your, is in the apple and in your mind. And so maybe that's what's going on. But, um, but I didn't know for sure that that's what was going on. And hold on a second, guys. Do you not Explain understand this. the private language argument, Robert? Um, do you not understand the, you do not, do you not understand the arguments for, for, extern, for externalism, externalism and semantics? Because they're the same arguments. Right, I, I understand. Well, here, uh, I, I think I understand the arguments for externalism and semantics. The Hillary Putnam stuff, meanings just ain't in the head. Right. That I think I get. So qualia is the same. It's the same problem. Except qualia, I feel like, is the what, it, what its likeness of an experience. And then I think of experiences as first personal. So that, that the idea that the what its likeness of something could be out there in the world, I just didn't understand what it means. And the reason I bring this up is not to have like a discussion about Ty's paper. The reason I bring it up is that I just don't understand the Wittgensteinian point of view yet, because it's not that I'm trying to do a gotcha, it's that I don't see how to escape the 
but is that really true question? Right. Like right. It, it's, it's like with, yeah. with, with empty, like, like with, with why is that, you know, the turtle stuff, it's turtles yeah. all the way down. I understand it's turtles all the way down, right? And if somebody said, you know, what does this computer rest on the table? What does the table rest on the floor? What does the floor rest yeah. on the ground? What does the ground rest on the center of the earth? What's that rest on? Well, it doesn't rest on anything. It has to do with gravity. Like, okay, now we've changed it, right? And now you can start to explain why not everything has to rest on everything else. Because the whole resting on stuff didn't make any sense in the first place. It's all gravity all the way up. But um, I just don't understand yet yeah. the Wittgensteinian move. And, and so when I say, when I keep on asking, but is that true? It's not me trying to trap you. I mean, it is probably me trying to trap you to some degree, but it's also me trying to make sense of it because I right. still can't make sense of it yet. So, so it might be helpful because this is actually to some degree um, why I kind of talked myself into pragmatism a while ago and have never been able to talk myself out of it. Um, the, the, the way the pragmatists would think about truth. So when you're asking, but is it true, but is it true? What you're meaning is, is it, is it descriptive of the state of whatever we're talking about, like the world, when we say is something like the truth is out there? Like, so when you ask, is this true? You're saying, is, is Dan trying to give an actual account of what philosophers actually do? Mm -hmm. And the pragmatists are going to say really the best we can ever do when you say, is it true? Is, is yeah. your, is your view, the true view of what philosophy does? The pragmatist is going to say, my view is true because the only thing I can say is that it is the interpretation that I think best accounts for what I see, but I have to stop there. I'm not going to say it's like, I'm trying to describe the world because I think the pragmatists are gonna be aware that there's probably many different ways you could describe it that mm -hmm. would make sense to different people given different starting points and different presuppositions. So pragmatists are not saying the truth is the thing that's out there that we're trying to map onto. The pragmatist would say, um, when we call something true, it's because it's the interpretation that is the most compelling that we can think of given all of the other arguments. Now, most people want to say, but that's because it reflects the truth out there. And the pragmatist is just going to say, that's not the game we're playing. Right. Right. But I does mean, that make sense. I, I mean, does it make sense? It makes sense. And then, and then How I do you agree with it. Does it make sense? Well, I'll tell, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I mean. By, so, so have you ever seen the movie Freaky Friday? No. Okay, I, I think it's on the criteria. I read the book too. I read the book first, and then I saw the original, the one with the, the first one I saw, and then there was some horrible remake, wasn't there? Jamie Lee Curtis and Lindsay Lohan. Oh my god! Yeah, so it's considered a modern day classic. I'd rather shoot myself than watch that. Yeah, <laughs> I like the Jodie Foster one or whatever the one the original, not Jodie Foster. Used? Who did the original one? Oh, I think it was like. Um... Wasn't Jodie Foster? No, I, no, I don't. Well, maybe it was Jodie Foster as a child actor. That's true. I didn't even that's think right, about Anyway, go on. Uh, yeah, we should get to the bottom of this. Um, but anyway, the point there is- There's no bottom of this. No. <laughs> <laughs> the reason, the reason I, and I'll tell you why I bring up Freaky Friday, and then maybe we should get to a different topic. The reason I bring up Freaky Friday is that when yeah, you watch- Jodie Jody Foster, yeah, yeah. And who? Um, the original cat, Barbara Harris. Barbara Harris, okay. John Aston. People are going to be relieved yeah. that they heard that now. Um, yeah. the, the reason that I wanted to, to bring up Freaky Friday, which I got to be honest, I've never seen. I've only seen one clip from it. And the clip I saw is the one where Lindsay Lohan and Jamie Lee Curtis switch bodies. And the way this is portrayed on screen is that there's a kind of ghostly image of Jamie Lee Curtis 
moving from Jamie Lee Curtis mm -hmm. to Lindsay Lohan. And there's a ghostly image of Lindsay Lohan moving from Lindsay Lohan's body to Jamie Lee Curtis's body. And then, and then they, they, then the, the ghostly images disappear and they start talking like each other used to talk, right? This makes sense. But when you start to think about it a little bit more, mm -hmm. it's not clear it does make sense because it seems to implicitly, maybe even explicitly rely on the idea that there's a soul, an immaterial soul. And of course, if you're a Cartesian dualist, that's going to make sense. Um, but some people think Cartesian dualism doesn't make sense, that it's literally incoherent if you start to ask certain questions. And if Cartesian dualism doesn't make sense, and a Freaky Friday assumes Cartesian dualism, then even though what you see on screen makes sense, it doesn't make sense when you think about it more. So what happens to me when you tell me your pragmatist explanation is that it starts to not make sense to me when I think about it more, because I keep on asking, so like, this is what is happening, truly happening, when people say that things are true. It's that this makes most sense. And that when I ask you, is, is the claim that this is the best right. interpretation true? You're going to say, well, the claim that the best interpretation is this is itself the best interpretation. And then I'll right. say, well, but I mean, how do you know it's a better interpretation than another one? And you can start saying stuff and you can yeah. just cash yeah. it out. Yeah, I feel right. So, so I, I'm I'm feeling like I'm in the same situation as as Dan, being like that feels like a, a game of like gotcha tennis. But I know it's not, and I would I I mean because because I I wrestled with that question. Yeah, and I think in terms of I mean usually it's called like the self-referential problem. Yeah, and the answer, the best answer I can think of is to sort of fess up to the idea that the best I can ever do is give an interpretation, and if you think you can do more than that, I'm I'm just going to think you're wrong. I'm just, yeah, I'm just going to think that you can't do that. I'll now, tell you what I was or wait to or wait to see you do it. Yeah. But even yeah. if I see you that's do what, it, I'll you know, probably that's, that's still interpret of, it as. But that's part of the problem with philosophy, because of course, philosophers are going to say they can do it. And they're going to give you an argument, right? The problem is the argument is full of premises that nobody can verify. And so the whole thing winds up being kind of bullshit, right? I mean, it winds up being a big performance, yeah. but it actually doesn't demonstrate or decide anything, right? You're still left where you started. Two people who don't agree who both think that they have good reasons for it, none of which can be adjudicated because they involve all kinds of premises that can't be demonstrated, right? And both walk away thinking that they've kind of won the day by yeah, getting beyond I mean, that it's, cosmic it's, it's, bar and nothing's been quite, accomplished that. I think philosophers are actually quite juvenile in this way. I mean, you know, it struck me, Robert, when you were asking about this, but then what about that? And But what other about that? I said to him, I said, I, I was thinking, unless you're four, why would you think that that ever, that ever ends that process? Why would you think that there ever is a bottom? Why, um, or unless you already have taken on board a model, right? The, the foundational, well, there has to be a bottom. No, there doesn't, right? Why should there have to be a bottom? This isn't, you, you, it only has to be a bottom if you've already taken on board a bunch of metaphors, right? Which I wouldn't accept, right? I think well, it's um, like a mountain. It's like no, no, a building. No. It's like a this. It's, it's like none of those things, right? It's a gazillion people talking about a gazillion different things from a gazillion different vantage points for a gazillion different reasons, right? It's not like a mountain or a house or anything like that. Um, oh, oh, but oh, but it is. I mean, here, here's the thing. Uh, like when when we look at the world, we can't help but to see patterns. That's and right. one of the things, one of the things that we see as a pattern is that people often feel a need to justify the claims they make, especially maybe even only when people disagree with them. So then we try to look at commonalities among the ways people try to justify their claims. And we try to see the way that arguments go. And then we see patterns. 
And to say there is no pattern, I mean, I'm not saying that you have to uh, prove that because prove is a very complicated word. I don't quite know what it means, but I do think you have to find places where the purported patterns go wrong, where where like it's not it's here here's why it's not a circle, or here's why it's not a pyramid, or here's why it doesn't go down forever, right? right. Like infinitesimal. Right. And the and the anti-realist does that. The anti-foundationalist does that. That's Wittgenstein. I mean, has complex intricate systems of examples and arguments to demonstrate that right you know you asked about the private language the, the reason why you can't have private x y's and z's is because all of these are rule governed concepts or practices and you cannot follow a rule by yourself right um and wittgenstein explains why and he gives illustrations of it right i mean so it's not just that there aren't any right it's that there are very painstaking uh, you know, uh, accounts by anti-realists of why all those metaphors are terrible metaphors, right? Now, you <laughs> no, may no, not think any of them are persuasive, but it's not like there aren't any, right? I mean... Okay, so this actually gets to the second part of my... Sure. The exasperation part. Sure. I mean, part of it you've already probably seen in the sense that um, he here's how... Uh, this isn't exactly what you're doing. In fact, it's probably not what you're doing. Here's how it often feels to me. And I know you don't mean this, but I'm just trying to explain how it feels. I say this seems to run into this self-referential problem. And then I'm told that's a childish thing to say. And then I say, but why? So many non-childish people have, have raised the same objection. I do. Yeah, I didn't quite say that, but okay. And, and then and then I say, yeah, uh, or and then and then what I hear being said is that. Yeah, but the person who, who, who gave, who pointed out that it's a childish thing to say, gave incredibly complex argue, justifications for why it's a childish thing to say. Or, or if not a childish thing to say, then something that you have to uh, realize is like false or something like that. The and it just I said was juvenile was the expectation that endless why questions are going to end somewhere. That's yeah. the only thing I said. I didn't say anything about anything of the rest of it. I mean, that was just, it was just that. I, I didn't understand why you thought that was a reasonable line of inquiry to begin with. But um, I, I get the sense you are very- the third or fourth why, I, I stop, right? But I get the sense you are very convinced that you are right about this. Right about what? About Wittgenstein's basic approach to philosophy in the sense that there are no anchors. There's just a series of language games. And when you ask about why should I believe it's just a series of language games, that's just a new language game you're doing with its own rules. And that at the end of the day, it's just a series of systems that each have their own rules that are interacting and there's no over. Right, and here are the reasons why you can't get outside of systems and blah, blah, right. blah, 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 right? Right. Dan, but, but, but Robert's right. gonna say that right there, you've made a claim about what-, what Right, is. I know well, I know he's gonna say right. that, but, but, but I guess, you know, I guess I'm wondering, the issue isn't that people can't make claims. The yeah. issue is the expectation yeah. that these are going to that these are going to be demonstrable such that at the end of the day, there's only going to be one claim left standing. And my answer is I see no reason to think that. Given the right. nature of the yeah. claims and the nature of the practice, I see no reason to think that. So so the 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 at the end of the day, there's going to be only one claim left standing. That's an interesting metaphor. Um it's one where I don't know that I believe that. I might think there's only one claim that's right. Uh, I think that there are certain reasons to think that philosophy is irresolvable 
in the sense that we're not going to, it's not going to be, well, I don't even know if math is like math, right? There's this, you know, toy model of math that we've proven these things and nobody can argue about it. But of course, whenever we prove these things, we have series of axioms. And if you accept the axioms and you accept the rules of inference, then you can really prove that this follows, but you can never prove that you ought to accept these axioms. It's, it's like the height of Kuhn's normal science. Yeah. It doesn't preclude the idea of a, a revolution in science. Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, so we can always go out again and again, but, um, but I don't think the anti-realism is demonstrable either. I mean, I've said, I must've said this a thousand times. I don't think the dispute between realists and anti-realists is, is resolvable. Yeah. And I guess my view is that, uh, I guess it's a transcendental view. I also don't think it has any material consequence. That's the other thing is I think that a lot of the ways that you okay. know you're dealing with a philosophical question is that whichever way you answer it actually makes no difference at all to daily practice, right? It has to do with a sense, with the way that you, in a sense, ornament the world you live in or, or the way that you sort of design, you know, you, you, you I, I, I haven't come up with a good metaphor yet, but I, I don't, I don't, I guess I just don't think that philosophy traffics in the kind of stuff that you end yeah. up. No, I guess my view is I not can't prove that. <laughs> right. No, no, you have to say that. Right. Um, <laughs> my, my, my view is that, um, and I, this is a Kantian thing to say, although it's a very anti-Kantian thing to say too. My view is that we are all realists. We all presuppose realism. We can't help it. And whenever you try to not presuppose realism, you end up presupposing realism in trying to, to undermine realism. Right. Do I have a powerful argument for that? I haven't, this is again, like the thing, the kind of thing I haven't, I haven't done a lot of research on, but I will say you ask, what's the material consequence of this? So let's, let's get into that because this is one of the things that I think helps to motivate, helps to explain my exasperation, which is that I, I, I'm, I'm puzzled by this phenomenon of people who are, who are at least about morality, but probably about, um, about metaphysics and epistemology in general, people who are anti-realists who nonetheless have very strong views, right? Where it's like- um, Why is that confusing? I'll tell you why it's confusing. Um, so if, if I thought that morality were all just a matter of opinion and, or taste or whatever you wanna say, and I thought, oh, here is like a very salient moral issue that's confronting me and an order to do what I think I morally ought to do, I have to make this great sacrifice. I feel like once you realize that it's just your preferences, then the force that you feel that you ought to make this great sacrifice will sort of dissipate. That doesn't seem to happen in practice, right? It seems yeah, to be that, that anti-realists can be just as committed as the most diehard realist to all sorts of sacrificial, behaviors or altruism or whatever. I don't, and see, I, the, I don't see the relationship though. I, yeah. I don't, so I don't get that relationship at all. So I don't he, see why I don't see why my caring passionately about something depends upon realism. I don't see that. I don't get it. Yeah. So, so if I say, um, let, let, uh, I don't want to do this, but mm, let's say there's some issue of big political import. Okay. And lots of people, are like having an argument. And then one side doesn't exactly win through argumentative force if that even ever happens, but they win through like commanding the institutions, right? And so they just say, you're not allowed to argue about this anymore. 
And then people who try to argue about it, they get like, they lose their jobs and stuff like that. Um, to me, it seems like, A, if, if I thought that everything were just a matter of taste, why would I, if I'm on one side, why would I wanna shut down discussion? And if I'm on the other side, why am I willing to be socially shunned or like get fired just for a matter of taste? Well, because you, because, because you're, by adding the just, you're trivializing taste and therefore loading the whole case from the front. But you're, I would you're say taste is the most important. I would say issue. it's the most important thing there is. So tell me what taste is then. Like that, that you would say that your taste is the most important thing right. there is. If, in the context we're talking about, because you're including morals and everything else, that's going to include things like caring about my daughter's well-being. Yeah, wouldn't you say right. that? The, wouldn't you say that? Why uh, it's why really taste weird is to it? ask somebody why you would care about that, and I don't. See, and I don't see why you would require realism to be true to care about that. Yeah, why would? Couldn't you just say that taste is the most important thing to me because it's what I have, given what's around me? Yeah, and the answer is because we're freaking mammals. That's the reason. Right. <laughs> so we're not disembodied egos. We're freaking mammals with very, very powerful sensibilia, right? I mean- One of, one of, my, uh, one of my friends put it really well. He's, he's kind of a, in the Nietzschean sort of vein. Um, we nerd out about, you know, uh, Rorty and whatnot. And he put it really well. He said like, the way he thinks of people is that we are mammals who develop the sorts of brains that cause us to ask questions that the universe wasn't designed to supply answers for. I was like, that's, that's pretty nice. So the reason we the reason taste is so important potentially is because it 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 can't not be. We're effective, us. emotive, conative beings, and 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 you know you ask well why would you go to all this trouble to stop somebody else because you freaking hate them that's why. No, yeah. no, 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 I'm being serious. I'm not. I'm not trying to be snarky. I mean, I'm I I don't understand your puzzlement about this. Are you saying this... you can only hate somebody? really passionately to the point to where you want them dead if there's some if you believe there's some object objective truth about their villainy i don't know at does, all i mean does some of this have to do with it seems to me like a lot of uh the way western philosophy is conceived of like the moral universe is essentially like a secular substitute for a kind of religious way of thinking which is that to take a stance we have to take a stance with the cosmic right against the cosmic wrong. And if it's not right and wrong in a cosmic sense, we can't really take a position somehow because we have to be backed up by the universe. Um, let me think about that. Um, well, actually, I'm not going to think about that. I want to think about, <laughs> I want to, I want to think about. I'm laughing only because I love your manner. It's really refreshing. Go on. <laughs> I, I have to think about like, you know, it's, it's here, here's, um, Here's one of these things that happens with philosophy. Um, sometimes people say, I think you've even said it in this conversation, one of you, that we never resolve anything with philosophy and that it just goes back and forth forever. And I wanna say it actually doesn't. It like never goes back and forth forever. What always happens is that people are talking and after a while they get derailed and change the subject to something else. Mm -hmm. And like, they're never kept on track by like a guy with a gun who can just <laughs> sit there 
and say, no, 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 Finish, damn it. <laughs> right, right, exactly. You have, you have to, you, you have to talk about this for eight have hours. You, have you read histories of communist China and their re-education programs? I, <laughs> they I mean, except they did except that, but the difference, yeah. the difference there is that the guy with the gun favored one answer. <laughs> this guy doesn't favor any answer. He just wants it to reach the point where the philosophers who are arguing see the parts where they can't figure out how to argue anymore. Right. I never see that happen. I never see philosophers keep on arguing until one says, gosh, this is just my bare intuition. I mean, they sometimes say that, but then they go on and they argue for why it's their intuition. And then it keeps on going and going and going. I don't know if any philosopher can even do it. So like, I'm actually not sure that we ever are in the conditions where philosophy keeps on going and we realize there is no getting to the bottom of it. That's a side note. So, but this seems to be one of those, those cases where maybe we're, we're, we're having um, an intuitive difference, a difference in intuitions. Yeah. And, and, I, and I find it puzzling that you don't find it puzzling and you find it puzzling that I do find it puzzling. Um, so let me, let me try to, let, let me try to, let's focus on somebody you hate, okay? If I say to you, hey, um, I noticed, uh, Larry, that you hate Brad. And Larry says, yeah, I do hate Brad. I want him dead. And I say, why? Okay, here's something that will never happen. But if Larry said, because I'm a mammal, I would say, what? <laughs> He's like, I just have feelings and I want to act on those feelings. And I say, but wait a second, did Brad do anything to you? And if he said, no, Brad didn't do anything to me. I just find myself hating him. I feel like such a person, if he went to therapy would soon find his hatred dissipating. Well, you're not going to, he's not going to go. That's not going to be the go-to answer. That's just going to be not, if he's pressed, impressed, 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 impressed. Yeah. And then finally point. he realizes that he's got no grounds for his hate. And he's no, well, well, okay. So at some point, and he's not even going to say, look, I'm just a mammal. He's going to say, look, this is just the way I feel about Brad. If you don't feel that way, like, fuck you. I don't want to talk to you. I can't Except convince you of it. He's going to um, say more than that. Right. He's going to say stuff like, like if he said, Brad, killed my dad, right? right? Now I get it, okay? No more needs to be said. If well, he so, said, yeah. yeah. If you well, want to stop me there. Well, no, I, but okay. So I think what's going on there, I think the reason, okay. So first of all, you have to ask why one person is asking another person to supply reasons for something. And it's probably because one of the people's doing something that the other person objects to and they want to figure out, should I object to it? Um, like we are, a, we are a social and cultural species that watch each other and keep each other in check. Yeah. So we've developed a system where we can supply reasons in order to convince each other. But you can do all of that without saying that one of these sets of reasons taps into some ultimate justification, where if you don't accept it, that just means you're on the side of wrong and I'm on the side of right. Um, like you can do all of that without any sort of foundationalism. Um. I, I have to think more about foundationalism because I, I don't think I am a foundationalist. I think I am an infinitist in the sense that I do think that um, what philosophy is about is the pursuit of depth and that um, for any reason you give, you can find a deeper reason and maybe it'll take a long time. Maybe you will never be able to find it, but maybe some other person will after a hundred years. Um, and that it just goes on forever. But, um, but I, I could be a foundationalist too. There might be some basic things as well. Uh, but I, I don't know but if I want to, yeah. 
I don't know if I want to put this in terms of foundationalism. I just want to say, look, I thought you were going to, I thought you were going to attack me when I, not attack me. I thought you were going to question me when I said, um, if Brad said, or if Larry says, I hate Brad and I want him dead because he killed my dad. And I say, oh, that makes sense. I thought you would say, wait a second. Why does that make sense to you, Rob? Because you're a mammal, right? And that you just get yeah, that we yeah. care about our fathers or our family members or whatever. Right. Right. And so, and so what I want to say is, I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to to see if that is a good answer, like because mm. if somebody said why do you care about the well-being of your son, I think I would I could say it's just a biolog a brute biological fact about me, but I feel like other things would spring to mind, like I think he's really valuable, um, I think he brings a lot of joy to me. Yeah, but, I think he, yeah. But Robert, the mammal answer was not an answer to that. That's mm -hmm. not what you asked me. You asked me why I should take taste to be fundamental. Okay. Now, by taste, we are including, of course, in, in morals. So it's not just taste in the sense of aesthetics, right? So you mean sentiments? It's things you care about, right? Okay. Things that matter to you. Things that, now I say, so my point was simply that, in my view, those things are fundamental. Right. And you asked why. And I said, because we're mammals. We're not disembodied rational egos. We're mammals. Right. Um, with effective sensibilities. We are conative beings. Right. This is this is really not disputable. I mean, this is known from our own anthropology, from our own sciences. Tell us this. Right. I mean, um, as an empirical matter, I mean, obviously, everything's disputable if you want to go into logical space. But I'm talking about just sort of mundane, normal, empirical uh, understanding. Right. We are sentimental, conative, emotive, emotional beings. Right. We also have reason. I think Hume got the balance much better than 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 the rationalists do. Mm -hmm. Again, I can't prove that, but I do think that the that our empirical science suggests it. Right, more and more and more, we're finding this out as we do more and more studies uh, on on people's uh, supposed rationality. Right, um, and um, now now that's entirely separate from. You know, if you ask me some question about why I hate X, Y, or Z, of course I'm going to give reasons, right? Mm -hmm. But the, the issue is not whether I have reasons for why I hate something, but it's more that the emotion is by itself the motivation, right? It's not, there isn't anything that then needs to somehow mm -hmm. rationalize or justify that. So right? your reasons are like the tail of the dog, not the dog where the well, I do also think that reasons tend to be post hoc, right? Right, um, and I think that that also has been demonstrated. Uh, empirically. it's not like you have reasons first and then you love your son, to it's a great that you love idea. your son and then you produce reasons. But I guess I still just don't see, yeah, how metaphysical realism about things like moral properties is required to give a shit about something. I just don't, I don't see that at all. So, I guess, so let, let me let me see if I can figure that out. So um, I, 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 I'm trying to think in other here. Words, in other words, let me make it very concrete. So I absolutely adore my daughter. Yeah. I would do anything for her, including walk in front of a train. Okay. Okay. Um, um, why does that depend upon her virtue somehow being objective rather than simply my feelings for her? Right. Um, so, or my wife, or whoever else you want, right? I mean, no, me. 
You. Is that fine I also? Fine. Yeah, yeah, I, I adore do. you also. I do. I hope you would walk in front of a train for me. Oh, I don't like that, but I do no. like, I do care. I would about walk you. in front of like a toy train. I care really? about you a lot, Robert, which is why yeah, I, I always want to know how you're doing. But does um, that depend on your virtue being objective? Well, look, okay. Again, part of, part of this is probably based on our my, my kind of transcendental realism, where I think you can't help but to be a realist. And when you see things as being the case, you can't help but to think that they're really the case. But, but let, me, let, me, let me try to go back from that. Kevin talked about the metaphor of the tail wagging the dog. Hmm. Um, I think that's sometimes true, maybe even mostly true, but I definitely think it's not always true. I definitely think sometimes the dog wags mm-hmm. the tail. Yeah. So one, one example, I will give an example. There is a song by the Tune Yards called, I think it's called Water. And there was this podcast called Song Exploder where the lead singer of the Tune Yards explained why she wrote the song the way she did. And the way the podcast worked is that they like, they, they isolated the backtrack, they isolated the singing, she explained the lyrics, why she combined these the way they did. After hearing her explanations, I felt myself much more emotionally, positively disposed to the song. Mm-hmm. Like the reasons changed my feelings. Right, and I mean, I the, the example that came- All the time with morality too. Yeah, I mean, the example that comes to mind is someone who becomes vegetarian or vegan because they've considered arguments about factory farming or Red Peter Singer or, or whatever. Right. So I certainly don't want to say that the reason yeah. we get yeah. our sentiments is that we reason ourselves into our sentiments. I don't know if you can reason a new sentiment out of whole cloth. Maybe you can, but I, I'd have to think hard about an example. But I do think that like when it comes to, yes, I love my son. Um, now... But when I start to reason, you know, often I'll feel like a very strong feeling and then I'll think, well, yeah, but should I really act on that? Um, Should, uh, is that feeling being, is that an accurate feeling? I know that sounds weird to say, but like, you know, if I say my son's the best son, right? I never would say something like that, but I can imagine some parents saying that, that my child is the best. Um, See, the way way I sort of translate that in my head is what you're doing when you think is this an appropriate feeling yeah is saying if i was in a community of like normal people and i had to give an account of this feeling would that be something that would be sort of acceptable yeah within the group okay but but i wonder and do you but but the standards that the group comes to aren't arbitrary but you're going to say yeah they're not arbitrary they're the kind of standards that the group would come to because it like is in the interests of the group as they understand their own interests, or maybe not even as and, they and because and because going back to we're biological creatures, we're not going to be infinitely variable, right? We're right. we're finitely variable. Um. Right. So if I thought that everything is just at the end of the day sentiment, sort of guided by reason, and I know that the only reason I care my son is that I'm programmed to. And that if I lost the feelings for my son, right? Like I get hit on the head and my love for my son disappears, then it would be sort of hard to like figure out a reason that I should do anything for him. Maybe impossible. So unless you live in a culture that's gonna look very unkindly on you if you don't and are influenced by the norms of that culture. Yeah, yeah, so, um, so I guess then like, if, if we take, if we take, if we go back to the Vienna Circle people who were, you know, verificationists and they thought that, that, that ethics was literally meaningless, 
Um, but they also were like willing to take great risks to save uh, Jews during the during World War II. Is is what like if you ask them why are you doing that when you think if I say is it the case that you ought to save these people they would say that doesn't even make sense they would just say yay saving these people is that the thought and that like and that if I say but you could die they'll be like I know but it's worth it that kind of thing yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's probably two. I still feel, I still feel like yeah. there's something yeah. really weird about that, but I can't now just, I can't articulate can't just it. Do something out of pity, right? I mean, what, it what has if, to be what if, warranted. I mean, I guess I, I really, it's not just that I don't understand it. I just, I can't even imagine living this way. I mean, I, I don't, I don't. You ask me why I do X, you know, why I'm saving this person, and I say out of pity. Yeah, and you say, well, do they deserve it? Um, you wouldn't just say part, yes. Part of my answer is going to be, well, I mean, I guess I think they do. I mean, I, 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 I would first of all ask, well, what do you mean by deserve, right? I mean, um, um, I'll, I'll, I'll answer that question. Uh, I'll, I'll give, I'll answer that question by, um, by, by giving an example. Uh, so, somebody, somebody murders a family of four, and they're. They're, they're running from the police and they go to your house and they look really sad. They say, they're going to catch me unless you hide me. And you feel pity. <laughs> Do they deserve it? No, right? They don't deserve your pity. And if you felt pity, you would have to think, right? My pity is not well, the right reaction. But that's because I'm ignorant of the situation. I, I, well, right. yeah. I, I yeah. doubt I would feel pity if if you told me the whole story, right? I mean, but if you, but no, I, I, or, or the, I mean, it depends on the, it, it depends that. on a lot of things. But right. yes, I mean, but, but let's, let's, let me, let me, let me bite the bullet. I'm hot. Listen, you know, um, there was a lot of crowing when Rush Limbaugh died. Right. I found it incredibly distasteful. Right. I hate Rush Limbaugh. Okay. Do you, <laughs> you don't want wait, him dead though. Wait, wait, <laughs> but I don't hate Rush Limbaugh's nephew. I don't hate Rush Limbaugh's grandmother. I don't hate Rush Limbaugh's sister. I don't wish, hate all these people who are probably really devastated. And I say this because I've also had this experience in my own, in my own life. There was a, a colleague who persecuted the fuck out of me, who cost me tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees to keep my fucking job, okay? Um, hated him. I did not throw a party when the man died. And if you ask me why, I would give you an answer in terms of a complex range of sentiments, mm -hmm. things I find distasteful. Now, if you ask me, well, why do you find these things distasteful? I would give you a combination of reasons and sentiments. Right. But if you kept pushing and playing the why game all the way down, 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 eventually we're going to get to mammalian answers. There is, there is, you know, and you know that I'm a Solarzian. I do believe in the mat that there is a manifest image and that there is a discursive and logical space that it's real, but that does not mean it's mine independent or any of this other stuff. Um, 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 it's real in the sense that we quantify over them. Okay. Um, um, all this discussion, I've been assuming that by realism, we mean something like mind independence. If all you mean is something like Quine's minimal, uh, we quantify over, then I would agree with you that everything we've just, you've mentioned is real. Right. But that's not what I thought we were talking about. No, no, you, you were right. It was mind independence. Yeah. 
Um, so, so I guess I just don't really grasp this idea that, but for my daughter's virtue being in some sense objective and real, it, it, there's no understanding of why I care so much about her that I throw myself in front of a train. I don't, I don't, I don't see that just strikes me as a straightforward non sequitur. Uh, yeah. So to me, well, okay. I'll say, I'll say two things real quick. Cause we're running out of time, yes. but to me, um, I'll say, first of all, when you are in the grip of a sentiment, it manifests itself in the form of reasons at least to some degree. There's like the cognitive part, as you said, but there's also a cognitive part. And I think there's almost always a cognitive part. And that when, when you get to the point where you say, at this point, it's just cognitive. I have to, I have, I, you said, if we play the Y game long enough, you'll get to that point. I, 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 I think you might be right, but I wanna see a, a case, an example in action, you know, preferably a real life one where it happens and this is the answer somebody gives. Maybe, See, they, maybe, they, maybe they happen all the time. Yeah, Kevin. I'm, a, I'm actually a bit hesitant. You said something a, a little bit earlier about when we feel, I, I don't remember exactly what it was. Correct me if I'm wrong. When we feel sentiments, we, we do so in some sense for yeah. reasons. I said they manifest themselves. They man the I, don't, I don't experience it that degree. way. I, I experience enough situations where it doesn't work that way, where what happens is sentiment, sentiment comes first and then you sort of produce reasons, especially when you're asked for them or when you ask yourself for them. I mean, the basic one is like, again, like, you know, your, your love for your children, your love for your parents. I don't, I didn't think my way to those and they didn't manifest in reasons. I only produce reasons when people ask me if they ever do ask me and they never have or when I, why you love that person or, or why you would do that thing. Yeah. 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 So okay. like, I, I actually think I mean, my view of reason is that it's this extraordinary human invention to try to communicate in a way that can persuade others of things that have to be packaged as communications. When you ask me for a reason, what I often do is think, what is my gut doing? Let me see if I can package that in terms that you will understand and might persuade you. I mean, that's, 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 not, I experience that's, that. that's clearly not always what reasons do. I'll give you an not, example. Okay. Um, you're playing Sudoku. Right, you're trying to figure out where to put the nine. Yeah, it's not always what reason does, but it's it's what reason does more times than I think your statement allows for. Yeah, so that's good. Like, um, manifest as reasons. So there's definitely times when um, I feel something and then I do something immediately before I before I put them into the form of reasons. So you know, uh, here's an example that happens all too often. I'm lying on the couch. Somebody, I'm not going to name names, but he's about seven years old, jumps on my balls. And then I scream and I feel intense anger all of a sudden. And I'm like, why did you? And so like, so like, if you were to ask me, why do I feel the anger? Okay. I would be able to give you a reason. And then, and then it'll like, I'll scream and I'll say, you stepped on my balls. Like, why did you do that? Right. And I've already put it in terms of reasons. I think if we were more primitive, like maybe when we were just uh, hunter gatherers and we were and we lived in single groups where we all knew each other and we didn't meet hardly any other hunter gatherers, maybe then we would like rarely think of things in terms of reasons and only when there's a disagreement in the group. And most of the time, like we would just express the anger, we would just smack the kid and then we'd go on about our day. 
Um, and I, that, that might be how animals do it. But I think at least now <laughs> we're in a society where it's so reason marbled that we, um, I, maybe just me, but I can't help almost immediately after I feel something to think about the reasons for it. Like why I'm feeling this way, what I'm gonna do about it, that kind of stuff. You know, We live with people who disagree with us. But yeah, I, the last thing I'll say, because it's, I gotta leave yeah, it. We're at the time minutes. and I was gonna say to you, Robert, but I will let you say the last word. Um, um, there was one other thing that Robert wanted to talk about, and that was um, what he thinks is the pernicious effects of. Yeah. yeah. And I would like to propose doing another one because that one, you know, is something that might wind up with a different configuration among us or or so yeah. I would like to, if you don't mind, do another one. Yeah, yeah. and I, I can write an essay about that. that. Or maybe I can if you write something, we could then talk about the essay. Brilliant. But please yeah. say what you were going to say, Robert. Well, I was in fact going to say what I was, so this is like a preview of, of the next dialogue then, which is that, okay, I don't, I, I'm not convinced into your way of thinking, certainly not about realism in general, about moral realism. I'm more open to maybe you're right about that. Um, but but I, I, I worry about how it's being used by people. So I think um, this is, I guess, going to, I can't help but this to be pejorative, but I don't necessarily mean it to be pejorative. Most people aren't very good at reasoning. And most people aren't good at reasoning because either they just have a limit, that's just not their thing, right. or they don't need to be, or they don't want to be. They want to get good at something else instead. And the problem is, is that I worry about what happens mm. when a kind of um, rampant social constructionism or a rampant anti-realism becomes the de rigueur view. No, I get and how people can use that to justify all sorts of things. People reason terribly. We'd like them to reason better. Yeah. The last thing we need is you and your philosopher friends walking around denigrating reason and saying it yeah, doesn't yeah, do yeah. anything. I mean, I, yeah. I yes, yeah. yes. And if, this is something I feel super conflicted about because like there's, there's two things about it. Like on the one hand, I don't want people going around thinking there's no such thing as real expertise. And so thinking that like whatever you believe about anything is just as good as whatever anybody else believes. And I feel that could be a consequence of this kind of anti-realism. On the other hand, there, are so, there have been so many cases lately when our experts as a class have failed us in just terrible ways to the point where I think non-experts would have done a better job. And so, um, so I also think there could be like positive results if this mm. became widespread. And I think whatever is whatever happens, Whenever there's a philosophical view that makes it to the mainstream, it always becomes a very crude version yeah, of that view. Absolutely. So you just have to figure out which crude version you want to win the day. And, um, and it's really hard to predict how that's going to work. But anyway. So realism yeah, becomes so authoritarianism and, you know, anti-realism becomes a sort of anything goes super egalitarian. Yeah, it's, it's like right? Catholicism versus Protestantism, right. right? Everybody thinks they have the Holy Spirit. Versus you have this institution that says what you can and can't do, right? Well, let's, um, let's next time take that up. But also, I think it does connect to the question of expertise and philosophy, which I think also is a good thing to talk about. Yeah, so we right. can get we can talk about that next time. 